welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I have to apologize to all of you listeners out there because I have been absent for a month or so. I have been pulled in many directions over the course of the last four or five weeks, and it has been very difficult for me to find the time to record and then edit and post an episode to this podcast. So I apologize, first of all, but I did want to point you to a special episode that I did with Revolutionary Left Radio on the life and work of Alexandra Kolontai that came out a couple of weeks ago. I think it was June 18th, and I will leave a link in the show notes to this episode if you're interested in kind of a more overall biographical look at Kolontai and the importance of her life and work for the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. I also appeared on a podcast uh, for NPR, National Public Radio, here in the United States, called Throughline, and it's a special series on capitalism. I was in the first of these uh, episodes. There are supposed to be three of them. I believe the series is ongoing right now as I record this. The next and final episode will drop on Thursday. And my episode was a roundtable, which was <laughs> quite heated, I have to say. We ended up having a hour and 40 minute conversation for that roundtable of which only about 45 or 50 minutes made it to the final podcast episode that they released on NPR. But it's been a very interesting series. And I encourage you, if you're curious to hear about a particular American take on the history of capitalism and the importance uh, of capitalism and the way that people are debating capitalism it, today you uh, can find a link to that episode that I did in the show notes as well. I will say that one of the people that I was debating in this episode is a libertarian from the Cato Institute. And it was at some points quite frustrating because parts where I was able to kind of expand a little bit more on some of the things that I was saying and where I very strongly disagreed with this libertarian gentleman, they ultimately cut out of the final episode. But I still think it will give you a sense of the tenor of the debate about capitalism today, uh, and which will be, I think, fascinating for anybody, both living in the United States and living abroad. The other thing that has taken up a lot of my time lately is I have a brand new article, big two-page article in the French publication Le Monde Diplomatique, uh, which has also appeared in the English edition of, of that um, publication. One of them, the French one, came out on June 30th. The English one came out on July 1st, and both the French and the English will have podcast episodes associated with them as well. So I've been you know, talking to people and, and fielding some media requests around that article. And finally, I was really happy that a scholarly article that I worked on with a graduate student of mine at the University of Pennsylvania, Angelina Eimansberger, who has been a guest on this podcast in the past, we had an article come out about politicized representations of love and sex in the GDR. And it was a kind of analysis of this really fascinating publication, which was sometimes called the New Yorker of the of the East, called Das Magazine. 
And we had real fun preparing this article for a special edition of Groniek, which I believe is, I think that's how it's pronounced. It's a, a Dutch journal, and they were doing a special issue on sex and politics. And if that wasn't enough to have going on, I am really happy to announce that my newest book, which I co-wrote with a colleague at the University of Pennsylvania, Mitchell Orenstein, is about to come out with Oxford University Press on July 9th, so four days from now. And I'm really excited about this book. It's been about three years in the making. We are looking at 30 years of data from a variety of different disciplines to see what happened socially, looking at the social consequences of the economic transition in Eastern Europe from communism to capitalism. And we survey 27 countries and try to make an argument about how certain kinds of perceptions that Eastern Europe is much better off today than it was before 1989 or 1991 in the Soviet Union, that in fact, we find and the data holds up. In some cases, there are many people that are much worse off today, living actually worse lives in terms of standard of living than they were under the previous system. So it is an academic book. I will also leave a link to it in the show notes in case anybody is interested in in going to our website and seeing some of the materials there. We did a book launch at the Foreign Policy Research Institute here in Philadelphia. It actually was a Zoom book launch, but I will also leave a link to that in case you're interested in learning more about this new project. So between the books and the articles and the podcasts and other things that I'm writing right now. I'm actually also working on a special article, a chapter on Alexandra Kolontai. I'm collaborating with a Russian historian who's actually working in the archives in Moscow with Alexandra Kolontai's own papers. And we're putting together a, a chapter for a new book that is about the lives of different communist women. So I really have kind of my hands full right now with all sorts of all sorts of projects, which is good and I'm excited and I'm happy. But it does mean that some of these other things that I do, like unfortunately this podcast, makes it, you know, it does make it hard to stay on top of the the proverbial pile. So all that being said, I wanted to read today a very short piece that Alexandra Kolontai wrote in November 1914. As I said, I've been doing a lot of research recently on Kolontai. I'm writing a chapter on her for the um, the book on communist women with this Russian historian, but I'm also working on another chapter that I'm writing for a book that I'm going to be doing with Verso in 2022. And in the course of researching Kolontai's life, I sort of stumbled upon I mean, I read it before, but I didn't quite realize how important uh, this sort of essay, long form essay that was written by Leo Tolstoy, the author of Anna Karenina and War and Peace. He wrote this really important document called The Kingdom of God is Within You. And it is in many ways the foundational document of Christian anarchism. It's also a really important piece because it really lays out the basis, the theoretical basis for pacifism. 
And the reason this this book, it's long enough to be called a book, I think, is so important is that when it appeared in English translation in 1894, it made its way to a young Mohandas Gandhi who read it and came to his own ideas about pacifism and nonviolent because of the work of Tolstoy. And in fact, Gandhi and Tolstoy exchanged letters for a period between 1908 and 1909 in that period before the First World War. But many people, including Albert Einstein, who was quite prominently a pacifist in the interwar period, were were moved by Tolstoy's work. And, And I was very surprised, I mean, not that surprised, but it was interesting to think about Kolontai and the influence that Tolstoy and Tolstoy's Christian anarchism and particularly his pacifism had on Kolontai's development. And so as I was going back and reading the essays that she wrote, uh, she during the First World War, as I'm sure I've talked about on this podcast before, Kolontai was a pacifist. She only becomes a Bolshevik uh, in the later period during the, the First World War because she is you know, absolutely horrified that these socialists in Western Europe, particularly the social democrats in Germany, voted war credits to the Kaiser. Like they were all talking about internationalism and how all the workers of the world should be united. And then as soon as the war breaks out, suddenly everybody becomes nationalist again. And they say they have to defend their homeland and their countries. And then they, you know, they basically allow for war in this most horrific form of of World War One. And so initially, uh, and for quite a long time, Kolontai is a pacifist. And her pacifism, I think, comes from this very strong pacifistic movement in Russia that believed that all wars were imperialist wars, and that this was basically the bourgeois of different countries pitting the working class against each other and dividing the working class. And for their own economic interests. And Lenin had this idea that all that the war, the First World War, should become a civil war. Like basically, since the bourgeoisie was arming the peasants, giving them guns and ammunition, the peasants and the workers should use those guns and ammunitions to rise up and overthrow the system that created the war in the first place. Now, in the early part of the war, Kolontai was absolutely opposed to Lenin's position because she was opposed to all violence. But eventually, Lenin convinces her that if you're anti-imperialist, if you're opposed to imperialism and and colonization, then you have to allow for violence for the oppressed peoples to be able to rise up against their oppressors. And it's only in the context of World War I that Kolontai slowly becomes convinced that Lenin is in fact correct and that the correct strategy of mobilizing the working class is to turn the First World War into a a variety of civil wars so that the working class of, for instance, Russia and the peasants in Russia would rise up and overthrow the Tsar, which, as we see, is what happens in in 1917. And people like Kolontai and Lenin believed that this would happen in Germany and this would happen across Europe. Now, the piece that I'm going to read today is a very short piece that Kolontai wrote in her pacifist period. And here she is just largely expressing her outrage at 
the idea that these internationalist socialists, people who claim themselves as representatives of the working class, would immediately become kind of nationalist warmongers the moment that war was declared. So just a little historical background before I read it. At the beginning of this essay, she talks about this meeting in Basel in 1912, where all of the socialists of Europe came together to condemn the Balkan Wars, which were happening at the time. And these Balkan Wars were wars which were being fought for the independence of countries that had been subsumed under the Ottoman Empire in the Balkans. And obviously, as I'm sure you know, Archduke Ferdinand is killed in 1914 in Sarajevo. And it's at this point that the localized war in the Balkans actually expands and becomes very quickly the First World War in 1914. So this article is from November 1914. It is called The War and Our Immediate Tasks. When the Workers International last met in Basel in 1912 in order to raise its voice in protest against the threat of a world war, which might have broken out as a result of the events in the Balkans, everyone was filled with confident hope. World war seemed impossible. While solidarity and the brotherhood of peoples unites the workers of every nation, while there exists that unity of objectives that marked the Basel Congress and draws together the proletariat of states both large and small, the working class has no need to fear bloody wars. Then the old imperialist capitalist world would not dare to provoke a war, for should war break out, the red specter would appear on the scene to terrify bourgeois society. This was what we, socialists, believed as recently as two years ago. But now world war has become a fact, with all its horrors, suffering, and barbarity. These have exceeded anything that even the most grotesque fantasy could have imagined. World war broke out at the very moment when an international congress was to be held in Vienna. This congress was to discuss yet again the important question of how socialists in every country could avert war and how the organized working class was to avoid falling into the trap of the imperialist capitalists. Until only recently, until the start of the war, it seemed completely impossible that the clear Marxist world outlook of the social democrats would be infected with bourgeois chauvinism. One might have thought the materialist understanding of history and the clear perception of class contradictions possessed by social democrats would serve as a scientific compass guiding the workers along the correct path, even during a hurricane of chauvinism. However, amidst all these considerations, social democracy overlooked one important factor. It underestimated the moral influence of the old bourgeois world on the mood of the populace. It failed to take sufficiently into account the present, well-prepared, treacherous policy being pursued by the supporters of the classed interests of imperialism. It turns out that the governments of the bourgeois states understood popular psychology better than the very representatives of the democratic and working class masses. The national feelings artificially stimulated by the capitalists and Junkers of every country in the world 
with the help of the church and press, and which are also preached in the schools at home and in society, would appear to be more deeply entrenched among the people than the internationalists realized. The imperialist capitalist world skillfully manipulates people's national sentiments in order to drive its own national population into the ready-prepared lethal trap of war. And when irrational and blind chauvinism proved insufficient to provoke a militarist mood among the people, the authorities had recourse to other methods in order to fool the people, including the proletariat, and attract it onto its side so that it would take part in a bloody war. All the capitalist states are now assuming the disguise of an attractive idealism in order to justify their rapacious imperialist policy. The Germans, it would seem, are raising the sword not in order to eliminate their rivals on the world market, but in order to overthrow Russian Tsarism. The English and the French, so we are told, are merely seeking to avert the threat to the world presented by the German police state and German militarism. And the Russians, if you please, are sending their sons into the battlefield, not in order to satisfy their pan-Slavism, but in order to liberate Galicia and Serbia, and also in order to save the republican system in France and democracy in Belgium. Thus, Tsarism is fighting for republicanism, and the Junkers in Prussia are sacrificing the blood of their sons in order to liberate Russia from the yoke of absolutism. This is an amusing caricature, which in other circumstances would reduce us to laughter, but which now, amidst blood and tears, is turning into a major historical catastrophe. People talk of the right of each people to self-defense. Each state naturally tries to present itself as having begun the war in order to preserve and defend its culture and not in order to fill the purses of the capitalists. Culture, yes, culture is indeed man's most precious possession. But is it not war that threatens the very existence of culture? Is it not because of war that magnificent old forests, the forests just outside Paris, for example, which constitute one of its most attractive features, are ruthlessly destroyed? Is it not war that destroys the best historical monuments and works of art? Finally, are there any cultural values which are worth the cost of hundreds of thousands, even millions of human lives? People talk of culture. But is it not war that gives rise to the most horrific barbarity, the slaughter of the sons of the people, of the children of the proletariat, grows with every day? The human mind is incapable of grasping the sum total of all the misery, deprivation, and suffering of the people. The basest, most bestial instincts rise to the surface. Militarism and the inhuman cruelty and blind discipline to which it gives birth rule the world. No one gives any thought anymore to men's most valuable possession, life itself. And this is called defense of culture. What will be the outcome of this dreadful bloodletting? Will the workers derive any benefit from the war, even in the case of victory in just one country? Even if it were possible to ensure the payment of war reparations by the defeated states whose countries lie in ruins, 
part of this money would immediately go into the pockets of the capitalists, and the rest would have to be used to rebuild the shattered economy. Want and misery will reign supreme everywhere after this world war, even in those countries that emerge the victors. Everywhere there will be an increase in the number of people unfit for work, invalids, the sick, the mentally deranged and orphans. Worst of all, however, war will subsequently affect to some degree or other the development of the productive forces. Disaster and bankruptcy, debt and unemployment will reduce the purchasing power of the people. And this will have a paralyzing effect on the normal development of the forces of production. This is, for us, the heaviest blow of all. Our hope for the rapid realization of our dream concerning the future of mankind is closely bound up with the continuing, unimpeded development of all the productive forces. Any delay in this development means that our best hopes are postponed to some unspecified date in the distant future. However, apart from all the horrors of war and mass murder, apart from the disruption of the national economy and the lowering of the cultural level, war has a particularly unfavorable effect on the position of the working class and its objectives insofar as the whole of mankind will be divided, albeit for a short time, not into classes, according to the basic tenet of the social democrats, but into nations. This reduces the impact of one of the most powerful weapons that the proletariat is called upon to wield, namely the solidarity of the workers international. Nonetheless, this dreadful war has already taught us a great deal. It has provided us with several painful lessons which we must fully recognize in order to benefit from them in the future. The war has shown us that the Workers' Party made a great mistake in underestimating the danger of militarism and offering too weak a resistance to its influence. The principled position of the Social Democratic parties on the question of how the workers are to behave in case of war was too ill-defined, too imprecise. The resolutions adopted by the international worked to the benefit of nationalist trends. Now, however, when German social democracy has allowed itself to be fooled by the Prussian Junker state and is pursuing a mistaken tactic in support of the war, it has become clear that it will be the duty of the future international to state its position on this issue clearly and precisely and to determine upon a firm, clearly defined revolutionary tactic as regards the threat of war. There can be no doubt that as soon as this dreadful war is over, all of the workers' parties will have the task of mounting a campaign against militarism. This task will continue to face us for many years to come. However, the ways and means to be used by social democracy to defeat the spirit of militarism will become clear only with time. In any case, we are wholly convinced that the struggle against militarism is at the same time a struggle for our ideals. All wars impede the further development of the productive forces, weaken the sense of the solidarity of the international proletariat and encourage the spread of chauvinism and thus delay the great day when the working class will finally be liberated. However, a systemic struggle against militarism is a task for the future. This does not mean that socialists should be passive towards war today. Today, 
Also, we can and should intervene in the bloody events taking place in the world and make our voices heard in favor of the most rapid possible peace under the slogan and end to cannibalistic mass murder. We social Democrats have no interest in and draw no benefit from the fact that evermore hundreds of thousands of our brothers are sacrificing their lives for the glory of their bourgeois capitalist homelands. We need these lives in order to create that army which will fight imperialism and capitalism. Thus, our immediate task is to unite all our forces in order to achieve the quickest possible peace. And our task for the future is to wage a relentless struggle against militarism and strengthen the spirit of international solidarity among the workers. In the face of the bloodthirsty chauvinist atmosphere now reigning throughout the world, socialists from every country must redouble their efforts and confidently proclaim, down with the war, down with militarism, down with blind chauvinism. May those international forces which will finally bring victory to the working class flourish and triumph. Okay, so... This episode is a little bit longer than normally it would be, and I just want to point out that this is obviously a speech that was then later published as an article in the newspaper. She is clearly taking this very anti-militaristic stance because she's very committed to her pacifism. You can also see here that she still very much associates herself with the Social Democratic Party. This is before her Bolshevik conversion because of Lenin's stance on World War I. But I think here what's really interesting is that even though this essay is more than a hundred years old, the idea that nationalism and xenophobia is used to divide the working class is something that is as true today as it was in 1914. And I will go into a little bit more of the history of Kolontai and some of the things that she wrote during World War I in future episodes. But for now, thank you as always so much for listening and being patient with me when I go radio silent for a little while. And please do keep up the good fight. <laughs>